Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Laurie Simmons. This weekend, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth opens Laurie Simmons' Big Camera, Little Camera, a retrospective of Simmons's 40-plus year career. The exhibition spotlights Simmons's long-standing interest in gender roles, most famously in a series of pictures that have used dolls and props. The show both begins and ends with Simmons's portraiture and also includes her recent work addressing climate change. It was curated by Andrea Carnes and will be on view through January 27th next year. The outstanding exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon lists it for $37. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Hammer Museum curator Allegra Pacenti joins me to discuss Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo. But first, Laurie Simmons, after a break. American photographer Paul Sapoya's work challenges conventions in the genres of self-portraiture and the nude. On October 13th, hear him talk about the relationship between artist and subject with Hamza Walker, executive director of LaxArt. Get tickets and learn more about this free event at getty.edu 360. On view through December 30th at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University, Micheline Thomas, I Can't See You Without Me, explores the artist's ongoing dialogue with authorship, identity, desire, and the historically charged relationship between artist and muse. Each of the Wex's four galleries is devoted to one of the most significant muses in Thomas's career, including the artist herself. Among the more than 50 works presented are her signature rhinestone-encrusted paintings, as well as collage, sculptures, installations, and a new multi-channel video collaboration with Grammy-winning artist Terry Lynn Carrington, created with support from a Wex Artist Residency Award. Don't miss the chance to see one of the season's most anticipated exhibitions at its only venue. For more information, go to wexarts.org. A celebration of the extraordinary artist, activist, and teacher Charles White is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Charles White, a retrospective, is the first opportunity in over 30 years to see such a wide range of his work, which was strongly committed to powerful images of African Americans, from historical heroes and icons to ordinary men and women. Get more info and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Lori Simmons, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I am thrilled to be here. Hello. Let's start in the first gallery of the show with a picture titled, Let Us Decorate This Room Together. It's a it's a black and white gelatin silver print from 1976. And we'll have it on manpodcast.com. But in the picture, we see a table set for what I, I think is two, but it might be one. It looks like there's a casserole dish on the table. There's an empty living room and fireplace beyond. And on the left-hand side of the picture, there's a big block of text that gives away that we're looking at artifice. I realize I'm looking at this picture 42 years on and all, but do you remember what you wanted to do with that text block and how you thought through artifice back then? I actually uncharacteristically sort of do remember what I was trying to do because... I had a couple of things in mind and it did seem really, it it seemed kind of radical to me at the time to be using book space as real space, or I should say attempting to use book space as like real living space. So I knew that I was doing a couple of things. The first one on a very personal and basic level was satisfying this desire I always had as a child when I was being read to, to, to climb 
off of my mother's lap and into the space of the picture book and live there. It was such an overwhelmingly strong desire I had as a kid and something that really frustrated me that I couldn't exist inside those pictures, whether it's Winnie the Pooh or whatever it was, Cat in the Hat, whatever was being read at the time, I wanted to be part of it. And the second aspect of what I was doing was borrowing something from all the conceptual process art that I was seeing in Soho in the 1970s that involved text. So I was I was kind of touching both of those, like scratching both of those itches. Number one, to get into book space, and number two, to be a conceptual artist or act like one. It, now that you put it that way, it reminds me that, that there's a lot of newsprint text in, in Dada and that, you know, that comes into American art, probably through Black Mountain, where everybody used the Asheville Citizen Times and that there really was a lot of text bouncing around in paintings even uh, back then. Were you concerned about or interested in the viewer knowing that they weren't looking at a life-size living room, if you will? Were you interested in in winking at them and getting them in on the construct early? When I started taking pictures of these small tableau, you know, making these rooms, I really thought that I could trick people into thinking they were real rooms, which actually in hindsight was kind of sweet and naive of me. But you have to understand that photography was so young and so much about telling the truth that the idea of photographs lying was almost but not quite a new, it was a newish idea. So I thought because I was too shy to go out on the street with my camera and be a street photographer, and because I was in my studio by myself and didn't have access to huge sets that I could create the sets that I wanted to with these small objects and maybe people would, maybe the scale would be ambiguous. So that's how I started. But then I started to do these things where I was obviously giving away all my tricks, like putting a small doll with a life-size lipstick or putting the page of a book with text next to this small, these small furnishings, but almost, you know, making drawings look like real space. So at a certain point, I was, I don't know, I was kind of talking to everybody all at once, alone in my studio. <laughs> you mentioned street photography, but the context, uh, maybe wrongly, that I often think of for both your work and for artists who chose to use black and white in the mid to late 1970s was the immediate context of Vietnam and how at a time when no one could believe what the generals were saying, that photography in color seemed truer. Do you remember that being important? No, I remember in terms of color photography, I remember the really big deal that was made about the Eggleston show at MoMA, which was the first color photography show. And I remember going to see it and thinking, well, these are nice, but what's the big deal about color? You know, because I, you know, my my family had been taking color snapshots and sending them to the drugstore. Like color, color photography in the context of MoMA was something astounding for people. But in the context of a real person with a real life, it was like no big deal. And I think I probably felt that way uh, I think I probably wasn't consciously or super aware of the transition from black and white war photography to color war photography because, you know, I lived through the trans transition of black and white TV to color TV and it was, it just, it it all kind of happened organically. You know, Vietnam was was more lodged in my political brain and whereas Eggleston was, you know, squarely lodged in the center of my art brain. And at that point, those things weren't overlapping for me. 
One of the elements that has recurred again and again in your work from the mid-70s on and into this century, for that matter, has been, of course, your, your famous interest in domesticity in the home as a site. First, why did it interest you in the 1970s? It interested me in the 1970s as a memory of both the kind of life that I had had and the way the life that I had was represented in the media and on television as being this sort of whitewashed, perfect zone, zone for living. And I knew from the time that I was a really little kid that there was a real difference between the way things looked and the way things actually were. You know, I've been lucky enough to have my work written about, you know, zillions of different ways and at different times. And, you know, my work has been neither a critique of domesticity or or a sort of dazzling objectification of it. It's really about retelling something that I saw and that was around me in Life and Look magazines, on TV and Father Knows Best and every other, you know, Donna Reed show, every other TV show that we watched, and also in my own home and sort of an examination of that. And then the other metaphor that has always been important to me and still is, is the metaphor of the home as the inside of a woman's mind. And I think that I see it as kind of a diagram of a woman's brain. So it's, you know, in that sense, it's a representation rather than, you know, an accurate depiction. I have read, and I don't know if this is still the case, that for much of your career, instead of having a studio that you go to, you know, in some chic industrial building in Brooklyn or wherever, that you have generally kept a studio at home. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So has the, do you think that's had an impact on, on the work? I mean, I, I, I work at home too. I get it. I get all of the practical reasons for doing that. But do you think that that has had an impact on the work? No, I think I like to be near the refrigerator whenever possible. That's, a, that's really important. It's part of, you know, it's one of my... One of my trails is the trail to the refrigerator and back when I don't know what to do. But I don't like going places to make my work. And if I do go somewhere to make my work, I want to stay there and I don't want to go back home. Sort of like I like to be wherever I am and I don't really like to leave. So it just it always felt like combining those spaces was the right thing to do. And when I first started living with my boyfriend, I guess it would be like 1978 or 79, who's now now my husband. We lived in a loft in Soho and there was a tiny little living space in the center. And we each had studios that fanned out from, you know, where the kitchen was. So I kind of, I feel like as I age, my domestic space became bigger and my studios sort of shrunk and everything kind of overlapped. But certainly when I started out as an artist, there was a refrigerator, a stove, a couch and all of the rest and a bed (laughs) and all of the rest was workspace. But a short answer to your question about my relationship to domesticity and working at home Not sure. Not sure that that, uh, because so much of my inspiration comes from pictures and movies and books and not my own space. So shifting back into the pictures themselves, I think the earliest work in the show is from your Untitled Cherry Wallpaper series, which begins in about 1973. And wallpaper, you know, stays in in your work for a decade or two. This this sense of, of decoration why is wallpaper, why was wallpaper important? 
Well, first, I want to start by saying that I never intended for the box of cherry wallpaper pictures to see the light of day. They were portraits of people who visited my bedroom at 547 Broadway between Prince and Spring was the first place I lived in in New York. And I built a little room and I wallpapered it top to bottom with vintage cherry wallpaper. And then I was wandering through Macy's one day, which I used to do to really think. That's where I would go to think. And I saw these uh, sheets that matched the wallpaper that were on sale. So the, the entire room was this kind of cherry-filled environment. And then I started inviting friends and boyfriends and family in to have their portraits done. And that's pretty much how I learned that's how I learned photography, basically, by, by doing those portraits. And I feel like wallpaper is something that it that allows you to put it to, to put a skin over something, to unify it, to make it be this enclosed space. And that was the beginning of me figuring out how and how I like to shoot and what I like to shoot. But again, the fact that my show begins with this group of photographs, the cherry wallpaper photographs that are now like some kind of time capsule and ends with my most recent work, which is called Some New, which are also portraits of my family and friends. That's kind of the most stunning fact for me about this show, because I think of myself as anything but a portrait photographer. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to those later on. Um, they are entirely different in, in the early work. You're not thinking about Holbein, for example. Uh, you mentioned Macy's. I that's a new one to me. That's pretty cool. What what do you remember anything specific coming from those Macy's wanders that made it into the work? Other than the bedspread, of course. It was huge. It was massive. I mean, it still is. But you know, for someone who needed a place to wander in New York, and my boyfriend worked at Time Magazine in the layout department, so he didn't get out to, of work till really late. Friday night. So I had this Friday night routine where I would go to the Genroku sushi place at 35th and 5th. And that was sushi that went around on a little conveyor belt and you grabbed what, like a little train. And then I would go over to Macy's and it seemed like Friday night was the night they put everything on sale. So the first place I'd go was a $10, $10 designer rack. And that was really high fashion designer clothes that nobody wanted. So you could imagine they were just the weirdest things in the store, which was completely perfect for me. And if I could get any of my girlfriends to go with me. So, you know, that would be my first stop. And then I would go to the, the furniture department and look at the tableaus and sit on the couches and just kind of move around these these fake worlds that were very much like what I was doing in my studio. I mean, I had different departments. You know, thinking about it now, I could—I really should have been going to the Met. <laughs> I really should have been going to a museum on a Friday night. But I—I I, I did seem to go there every Friday. Well, speaking of clothes, when people come into these tableaus you're building, to my eye, which is not a sophisticated fashion eye, they're wearing clothes that are already out of date by the mid to late 1970s. I'm guessing that was intentional. Were you trying to point to a specific era, specific memory, or or is it more or is the reason more prosaic than that? Are you talking about cherry wallpaper? No, I'm talking about a little later on when we when we when we get into, you know, kind of where you have the, the plastic models. Well, those were the dolls that I found when I you know, I was buying well, first of all, at one point in nineteen seventy one I I I've written about this so many times, but I'll, 
I'll mention it again. I went to a toy store in in the Catskills, actually in Liberty, New York, a toy store that was going out of business. And I went up into the attic of the toy store and all of the toys, many of the toys, I should say, that I'd gotten when I was a kid were up there, but wrapped in their packaging. That may sound very magical and, and mystical, but you have to realize when I was a kid, there were far fewer toys in the world. Like everybody had the same doll. Most people had the same dollhouse. There was just a much, you know, a much smaller selection. So the fact that I could find all my old toys up in this attic of this toy store was both stunning and also like, okay, that happened. So I bought a lot of those toys. The The proprietor of the store was pretty much, he was going out of business. He was pretty much giving them away. So I had toys that came with dolls that were, this was the 1970s, but the toys were from the 1950s. So that, that sort of gave me this built-in nostalgia that I wasn't even necessarily looking for or asking for. And then I was buying a lot of toys at um, yard sales and thrift stores. And every time I would buy a cardboard box full of toys, there were some dolls in them. And I would throw the dolls into a corner of my studio because I was 100% not interested in photographing dolls. So they ended up in a pile in a corner, you know, on their way to being thrown away. But, but clearly, they weren't thrown away and at a certain point were invited in and kind of stayed there for years. I read that in a recent interview, I think with Vogue, you had this great four-word line, plastic is my marble, which is, is you know, like a, a really conceptually tight idea. Is that something you realized later or was that or were you thinking about using kind of a mass cheap consumable to reference kind of a mass cheap consumable era? I mean, were you aware of, of, of that idea back in the 70s? I was aware that plastic was always considered the wave of the future, like the practically the first line of the graduate, you know, to that, to, to I guess his name was Ben, Benjamin, is just like, let me tell you something, son, plastics, one word, plastics. So plastic was always seen as what the future would hold, you know, would, that's where you would go if you were really into success and into being part of the future. The other part of plastic for me is that it was so beautiful to shine light through it. it. There was, I felt like there was so much I could do with it. I mean, what I didn't understand then is how plastic, how the, the meaning and the concept and the visuals and the associations would change to the point where plastic is now evil. And one of the last pictures, you know, and we can talk about it later, the 20 foot long picture called The Mess is just a, a rainbow gradient of plastic products. And we now know that as we see, you know, as as we can actually think about the end of the world and know what it might look like, plastic is up there with the the most one of the leading demons of of all the toxins out there. And we know that there's something swirling in the ocean, you know, that's probably as big as the state of Texas, that's completely made up of water bottles and plastic cups and whatever else is out there. So it's interesting for me how plastic is still in my work, but how the meaning has changed. I'm glad you brought up the mess because one of the things that runs through the work from nearly beginning to end is is the way you have fun with how light hits it moves through plastic. So just to give an example of a mid-career work that does the same thing, the, 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 the Deluxe Reading House series has these extraordinary 
primary colors often, not always, but but often there's a picture of light moving through and just glowing out of a red chair. Did the way light and plastic worked with cameras interest you throughout right up through last year or was there? Yes. Yes, always. Um, and there are, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned light shining through a red chair because that comes up. There's a red chair with light shining through it in practically every other series in my work, just like there's a white plastic toilet that keeps reappearing, whether it's big or small, whether it's on legs. But there are these images that just keep popping up again. And it, it really it really is about light through plastic. And when I, you know, when I talk about plastic being my mar my marble, something that, I, you know, my material, that's what I mean. The combination of those two things are like gold for me. They're like, you know, it's like liquid gold. So not counting that that early work uh, you made with the wallpaper and people who were visiting you, I think the first men in in the model-based work, if you will, come in in 1979. Did you have to think through letting men in, or was that just, you know, Tuesday and what you felt like doing? No, I had to think it through because um, my first show at Artist Base in 1979 were the dollhouse photos. And I remember bringing my work to Helene Weiner, who ran Artist Base at the time, and I almost didn't bring the doll photos with me. And my boyfriend, again, who is now my husband, Carol Dunham, said, you have to bring the dollhouse pictures. And I said, I can't. I'm embarrassed. And I wanted to bring the Black series, which was much more austere and connected in my mind more to the conceptual work that I was looking at in, you know, in New York. Well, I did end up bringing the dolls. They, Helene was much more interested in them and I did show them and they were written about and it was sort of like, it felt like, it felt to me as a young artist, like a kind of launch. That said, I was still so unsure. I thought I have to make some pictures about guys and what would be, what would be the equivalent if if the housewife is like Donna Reed or the woman on Father Knows Best or all of these shows that we were watching, what would be the equivalent on TV? And the equivalent on TV uh, were the cowboy shows like Gunsmoke and Have Gun Will Travel. And so that's why I had this cowboy idea. And my husband had saved all his cowboy toys from when he was little. They were all packed neatly in a box. And he had named them the big figures. So I called the series The Big Figures. I mean, they even had little little woolen cowboy jackets that his mother had knit for the for the big figures. So I think that every time I use men, it's about trying to sort of go back on this idea that I'm only shooting women and trying to also include a male audience who I always felt would be isolated or feel excluded by the fact that I only made pictures of females. Uh, oh, it sounds like you just had a moment, an oh moment. <laughs> well, it hadn't occurred to me men needed to see men, I guess, especially because in the history of art, men have been so eager to see women. I don't think I thought they wanted to see my kind of women. <laughs> no, I was completely serious. I felt like they, you know, this is, you know, when you're a young artist, your, your fantasy about the viewer is just right smack inside your own brain. Like I had no idea. You know, I certainly was in dialogue with the artists around me, my artist friends, and a lot of my artist friends were male friends. A lot of them were sculptors and painters, including my husband. But it's just this crazy idea you have about who's looking and what they're looking at and what they want to see. It's, you know, it's purely fantasy. So my idea was that some of the 
men viewing my work would like to look at men. Well, it must be said, once the men come in in 79, they mostly go right back out. Yeah, they go back out. And sadly, they come back in as ventriloquist dummies, which got me in a lot of trouble at the time. I was just going to say, with the exception of maybe one kind of Marlboro Man-style cowboy in 80, like, five in the fake fashion pictures he's not he's only there as a projection which is interesting yeah right because the first cowboys came in in 1979 and then another cowboy came back in 1984 and 1985 and were you consciously playing male stereotypes against the 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 domestic housewife stereotype or is that just the way it worked out i think i was looking for stereotypes I mean, I think that's what I've always, you know, I've been so interested in in uh, gender stereotypes from the very beginning. And probably, you know, from the moment I was conscious and could understand, you know, my mother, we were, I had two sisters and our rooms were painted pink. And when my mother was pregnant with my little sister, she was really hoping for a boy and she painted the baby's room blue. And when the baby got home from the hospital and was a girl, that was pretty much the only conversation that I remember is as people came to visit the new baby, all of the laughing and apologies that the room was light blue and that it was going to be painted pink as soon as we got around to it. So one of the things that we haven't talked about, because you've talked a lot about it over the years, is 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 kind of uh, being a feminist artist and what you how you didn't want to be a painter and why not and all that. But I am curious about how and why you landed on production and stage managing, if you will, as a rejoinder to male painting. If there was something particular about total control of these worlds you constructed and constructed for decades that seemed like the right rejoinder to to a male-dominated medium. Well, you answered so many of the question, so many of your questions you answered in your question. I mean, number one, the history of painting and sculpture, the male-dominated history of painting and sculpture is just too damn long for me to try to jump into. I don't know how, how I, if I really articulated that to myself in a really clear, cogent way. I'm not sure I did that, but I felt it. I felt like this history is too damn long. There's no room for me. And a camera felt very new. I know that seems odd, but in 1975 and four, camera felt like a newer, a newer tool. So there was that. And then there was just this idea of total control in my studio of these little sets in a world that felt very out of control to me. You know, I was struggling to stay alive. I couldn't figure out how to make a living. I fell into the New York you know, art scene that was just, I was a woman living on my own with roommates. I mean, we had a kind of crew of women supporting each other, but life felt very overwhelming. So I feel like the control in the studio was very, very important to me and made me feel like a big boss, frankly. And by the way, my models couldn't talk back or tell me what to do or, you know, in terms of being a feminist artist, people would ask me that. And I just really, I just didn't know what it would mean to say you weren't a feminist in the 1970s or 1980s. Like, how could you say, no, I'm not a feminist? What would that mean? And I think that we're talking about language morphing. I think that the meaning of feminist has changed. It's not a word that is that makes everyone feel inclusive. I think we do have to come up with a new language for women. It's time. I mean, the, the word serves a purpose, but it's not, it's not a perfect word. And this is not a perfect world either, so...
one of the kind of visually distinguishing features of a lot of the work well into the 1980s is that you put people or characters, I mean, sometimes they're obviously not people, they're, they're plastic, <laughs> in these visually, what I would say called suffocating spaces. You know, you have these loud pink and green chairs, or you have this loud wallpaper, or you have these, these very, very bright primary colored walls that, that make it into the late 90s even. Did you think of those interiors as as suffocating and overwhelming or those contexts as suffocating and overwhelming? And if so, why? I think, honestly, no. I think that my my policy, if we can you know, say we have art policy, has always been to go towards my idea of beauty. That said, that I know that my idea of beauty often doesn't correspond to other people's ideas of beauty, but I felt like if I always, always drifted towards or planted myself firmly in the center of what I found beautiful, that would be a really good territory for me to operate in. I mean, you know, it's in, it's interesting when I first started to have a presence on Instagram, you know, I would post a picture of the family and get lots of likes, post a picture of my pet, post a picture of a landscape, and then I would post a picture of my work, something I was really proud of, and suddenly the comments would be, ew, <laughs> creepy. <laughs> so I, you know, I know that, that my idea of beauty, again, is it's fairly singular, it's my own idea of beauty. But that said, I never went towards an interior or decorated something in, you know, either the instant decorators or those photographs or the longhouse or artist Winkler. And I, you know, these are series, I realize I'm not describing them, but they all involve very complex interiors. I never went towards something that I thought was suffocating or grotesque or garish. That's that's not that's not what I like. So you I can guarantee you that what you see is what I love. <laughs> that's that's interesting because the tourism series from the mid 1980s, 84 is really pretty. And, and, and you know, the, the, the plastic figures, which are now monochromes are mostly monochrome are, are garish. But everything else is, is pretty gorgeous. I mean, the, the tourism bikini atoll picture which is all blue, is kind of hard to look away from. So I'm curious about what motivated that series, because the ideas and the places in them, to me anyway, seem kind of so big, so multi-layered, that the only ways that an artist in the 80s can address with can, can can address say the atomic bomb is maybe through through toys you know maybe maybe that's the only way to add something new or to to get us to look at something that by then was commonplace and threatening was was through toys do you yeah is that right i think that the pictures are more monumental and i can say that because they're about monuments and i think that my you know the motivating factor there was finally feeling confined and claustrophobic shooting interiors and thinking these dolls have to get out in the world just like I am and it kind of coincided with a time when I was leaving New York to do shows I was finally I could finally afford to travel I was invited places to travel if I had an exhibition in Europe so the the tourism pictures literally coincided with the beginning of my being able to travel in the world. Making them involves shooting these tiny little dolls called the Teenettes. And 
again, these dolls, they were monochrome dolls, but they were a Japanese toy maker's idea of what an American teenager looked like. They were created, designed and created in Japan. So they were sort of American girls, but dis, you know, from a great distance. Yeah, just if I can jump in for a second, we'll have images on manpodcast.com, but they are elongated in, in art historical terms, one might almost say mannered. And they just look as if they're referencing human figures without being true to human figures. Right. And they have ponytails and what are perceived to be cool clothes. And they're kind of lanky, but they're very odd. I think that at the time and maybe still today, people are a little put off by those figures. But in order to find the monuments, um, this was way, way pre-internet. I used a rear screen projection, so I would project slides of places in the background. Where was I going to get the slides? Well, interestingly, when my parents first started to travel, first started flying in airplanes and going on uh, tours to Europe. I was a teenager and my father, who was an amateur photographer, a terrible amateur photographer, but a great inspiration to me, would often buy existing slides. Like you'd go to the Parthenon and there would be somebody selling slides of the Parthenon and he would buy those slides and slip them into his slide presentations. Like he'd have the family over and friends over to see the pictures from his travels, but he used a lot of slides that he didn't take. So I found those slides that he had, and that was his slide of the Parthenon. And I think his slide, it might've been his slide of the Great Wall of China. And then I also went to the slide library at the Met and they let me check out slides and all of their slides. I think they were a kind of slide called a Sandak slide and they faded with time. So I had a, a Stonehenge that had faded to green and other backgrounds that had faded to blue. So, so all the color had been kind of bleached out and the backgrounds themselves became monochromatic. And those were the slides that I checked out of the Met. I'm, I'm really curious to know what happened to their entire slide li library because we know it's, we know, you know, it's not active anymore, but God, I'd like to get my hands on those. You stuck with uh, rear projection, I think, for, for the fake fashion pictures later that year. You know, we've, we've talked about art history plenty, but it, but the fake fashion series strikes me as a really direct address of of contemporary feminist art. You know, the 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 one of the backgrounds looks like it's right out of a Martha Rossler. And there's there's a lot of Cindy Sherman there. Were you looking at them? Were you thinking that you wanted to kind of sit at that table? Of course, Cindy is my contemporary, but uh, we started using rear screen projection at exactly the same time because my ballet series in 1983 was also rear screen projection. I started using it. I started using rear screen projection in 1982. So I remember talking to Cindy because we were both trying to figure out how to use it at the time. So the ballet series, which is not in this show, color coordinated interiors in 1983 and tourism 1984 and fake fashion 1985 all use rear screen projection. So I'd been using it for a while. I just had never put a human in front of it. So to get it for me to be using an eight foot by eight foot rear screen was that was the big step to, to actually position a human in front of it. So Cindy and I, you know, had a very close, I don't know if I would 
say, a close dialogue because when we would get together, we didn't always talk about our work. We had a million other things to talk about and still do. You know, there's this cross-pollination all the time of artists that are working at the same time. And it's it's kind of like, os- I don't know what it is. It's psychic, it's osmosis, it's cross-pollination. It's so many different things. It's ideas that are in the air that everyone seemed to grab onto at once. I was much less familiar with Martha Rossler's work. We weren't in the same social circle. And also I didn't have opportunities to see her work. And I'm often surprised um, when I look back at some of the overlaps that I wasn't aware of. And I think that stuff happens, you know, generationally. People live and work at the same time and they've got the same, you know, they've got the same cultural stuff coming at them. And often artists I mean, I see it as a teacher. I see students in different places working on similar ideas, and I know they haven't seen each other's work. It's just kind of an amazing thing that happens generationally. So with the fake fashion pictures and other related series in 83 and 84, you had really built up these dense, colorful, cacophonous, layered, overwhelming things. You're juggling a lot within the rectangle. And then everything gets much more spare very quickly in the walking and lying objects. So before we talk about what you're doing in the walking and lying objects, which is probably your most famous series, what what about that interest to kind of pare them down? Had things just gotten too loud or did you want to try something else or... Yeah, I think when things get, I think when I feel like there have been too many girls in the work, then I want to go to boys. And when I feel like it's been too loud and crazy, I mean, I I realized we didn't talk about the underwater pictures, but that was another time in 1981 when I started shooting real people. We certainly don't have to go into into detail about them, but it was when I was finished shooting real people, like I just got really tired of working with real models that I went back to shooting, dropping dolls in water and shooting little dolls again. So it's it's a constant back and forth of what, you know, I've got to do this. I'm really enthusiastic about it. And now, now I'm done and I'm really sick of it. So I have to do something new. You know, it's kind of like, I'm really hungry. I'm going to have lunch right now. Now I'm really full. I don't want to eat anymore. You know, it's just like the way life works where you just start something and you do it and you finish it and you take a break and you try something else. And it's, you know, it's in hindsight, it all feels very frenetic. I mean, there were certainly, you know, spaces of time in between, but it does, from where I am now, feel like a lot of frenetic energy and a zillion decisions that got me from one place to another. couple things on walking and lying objects. First, is that what the series was called at the outset, or did that kind of become the vernacular by which it was known? Yeah, it wasn't called anything. I mean, I, 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 I called them like walking camera, colon, Jimmy the camera, you know, the one that Jimmy DeSanto posed for, or walking or, or sitting accordion or walking gun or lying gun. You know, it, it was pretty much about what they were doing. And then, you know, when I had enough of them, they kind of, I, I just called them the walking objects. So I kind of know what I was talking about. So a lot of the objects in this series look to me, thinking back or trying to, 30 years. So some of the objects seem to me contemporary, such as the purse, and some of them seem old-timey, nay, nostalgic. Were you trying to reference nostalgia, or or are these some of these objects, most of these objects, more contemporary than, than maybe memory uh, makes them? They were personal. So when I was trying to come up with the objects, at that time I was going swimming a lot in a freezing cold pool at NYU. And the only reason I was going swimming was that it was a really good idea, a good place for me to think up a 
what my next walking object would be. I just remember swimming along and thinking about what a microscope meant to me when I was in grade school and junior high because I never, I wasn't, I didn't spend a lot of time at the science lab because I was an artist. But it just seemed like this really smart science kids using their microscope. And I remembered what that microscope looked like. So I went out and tried to find what I remembered, what I remembered it, you know, to look like. And that kind of represented science to me. And also I remembered having a certain kind of hourglass and turning it over and turning it over and watching the sand go from one side to another and how, how intriguing that was when I was younger. So I would pick objects like that. And the purse was really, the purse may look contemporary to you, but it was really an old fashioned alligator lady's purse that that was particularly from another time that was one i was guess i that was one i i mean i seem to remember people having that purse in the 1980s including possibly even my family so it could just well be that that purse would probably look great right now on a fashion level because it's a beautiful shape but that's why i picked a really classic purse and that was actually that purse is actually life size as is the camera i had a purse constructed and the camera i borrowed from the Museum of the Moving Image. It's the camera that appeared in that movie, The Wiz. So it was a wearable camera. But I realized that I didn't have the resources to build life-size objects until I made a film in 2006. And then I was able to make walking object costumes. And that was many, many, many years later. But that's when I went when I started to use really small objects, like a little house from a train set and a microphone and different kinds of guns and a birthday cake and, you know, things that were smaller. So we keep talking about objects and your past, um, your personal history. Were you interested in or consciously disinterested in the idea and even the traps of nostalgia? You know, I was making pictures about what looked good to me. And what I've started to realize lately in real time, in real life, is that nostalgia is not, nostalgia has become sort of a dirty word. And I realized that, I realized, you know, when I've been screening, doing a lot of screenings of my, the movie I just made, which is called My Art, that when people talk about parts of the movie that are nostalgic, that are about old film, they, they, they say the word nostalgia and they kind of sneer it out like it's a dirty word. And I, it's just occurred to me that, Something has happened to that word, and it's not a good word anymore. I haven't really figured that out. I think that's true, and I don't know why it is either. <laughs> but that said, I was using objects and making pictures about things that were very pleasing to me in my memory, things that looked really good to me. And I think maybe nostalgia has just sort of crossed over into like the general culture cultural awareness maybe it's like just having too much chocolate cake or something it's just like it's just too much and too rich and it's just become maybe that's why it's become something of a of a dirty word i know that i'm not interested in things that are old anymore i'm interested in things that either feel like they're very much in the present or have no or not located to any place or time at all that's that's where my interest lies visually right now very much in the present. It seems to me that kind of around the underneath pictures, um, 1998, the work certainly references gender, but seems more interested in, in gender roles. 
do you did you think about the difference between gender and and roles imposed on on gender? Well, I can say, as I said before, I've always been interested in gender roles, gender stereotypes. Even in a subtle way, I've always been interested in gender crossover and boys dressing like girls and girls dressing like boys. I'm not even talking about trans culture because there was certainly a point in my life when I knew nothing about that. But I was always interested in, you know, the switcheroo. Like, I wanted to dress like a boy. We weren't allowed to wear pants to school. I know that sounds really shocking, but we weren't allowed to. And I was always intrigued. That's why I, you know, I know that it opens a whole other conversation talking about the movie I just made. But briefly, to to say this Briefly, the movie is about an artist and she, her artwork is clipping um, scenes from old movies. That's her artwork. She's a video artist. And one of the scenes that she clips is a scene from Some Like It Hot uh, when the two characters, the musicians, are cross-dressing. That always interested me when I was younger. I can't really explain why, but boys masquerading as girls and girls masquerading as boys. And maybe that's because the gender gender roles were so specifically laid out, as I mentioned in my story about uh, my sister coming home to the blue room and us having to wear pink and red clothes and boys wearing blue clothes. This stuff was so prescribed. It was so rigid. So maybe, you know, one of the many ways I could figure out to be subversive when I was younger, which was important to me, was to think about these overlapping gender roles, which were such, it was such a taboo you know, when I was growing up. Because there are also works that that point very directly to the construction of, of gender, like the Walt Disney picture from the Color Pictures series, where the movie camera is part of your work, and it's looking at the woman you present who is in the ways relevant to Walt, not visible to us, but to him. And the camera's looking at her, and he's not. <laughs> well, I mean, that picture, you know, there are two pictures the ser- there I think there are four or five pictures in this exhibition from a series called Color Pictures, and it came right after, immediately after, I made a movie called The Music of Regret in 2006, where I basically said goodbye to all my previous pictures and thought, I'm striking out new. So I basically made a movie musical where you know it was like a long goodbye to all the work I'd made. So when I started this new series, I started using women that were naked. I was downloading free porn from the internet and using naked women because I felt like I didn't want the clothes or the rooms or anything to have an association with the past. Of course, Walt Disney kind of sneaked in there, as did Andy Kaufman, who was one of my best friends when I was a really little kid. We played together all the time. So we grew up in the same town. So in the middle of making the color pictures, I had a very, very long and extreme dream about Walt Disney and just thought that I had to put his image in the pictures. And then I decided that I wanted Andy Kaufman's in the image in the pictures too. And of course, putting Walt Disney in anything is like, you know, putting the word nostalgia and neon lights in your picture. I mean, he's so much about my generation's past, you know, he's such a big deal. And he's something so mysterious about him and something so like, he couldn't, he's not, he couldn't be what he seemed to be. I mean, there's just something so mysterious about him for me. Before we get to the How We See pictures, the recent portraits, I found something that you told Linda Yablonsky, I think about 20 years ago, that you were 
influenced and right at the beginning by the fashion photography of Deborah Turbeville. I was not familiar with her until reading that. I'm guessing Blonsky wasn't either because she because she spelled her name wrong throughout the essay. <laughs> so I I thought that was really interesting, and I went looking through the pictures, and I totally get it. So why Turbeville? What in the what in 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 her pictures? I assume it was her pictures that interested you, not her editing career. What in her pictures worked for you? I think the way that she portrayed, you know, these 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 women were, you know, there were a lot of men working in fashion photography at the time, you know, from Helmut Newton, Chris von Wagenheim, a lot of men who were shooting women, uh, you know, it was another, women were being very sexualized. It seemed to be okay in the 70s and the 80s to start doing that. But Deborah's pictures, Deborah Turberville's pictures seem to be pictures about women by a woman. And they were, the women looked very sad, um, which appealed to me. They inhabited a, an absolute world of her creation. Those first bathhouse pictures were women in bathing caps shot inside public showers. And it seemed like she had created a complete environment without building it, a place where everybody seemed to be where they belonged. Not to mention formally that the color and the light, the atmosphere was just so beautiful and so thick, you could literally scoop it up with a spoon. But the pictures just really spoke to me. Her work really spoke to me. And I think uh, maybe maybe influenced the fact that I even started to shoot those little blue atmospheric bathrooms in 1977 and 78. I feel like they were, you know, again, that, that, that feeling like there was air that you could touch and breathe and that, you know, air that came in colors. I, I felt like I saw that in her work and I wanted that quality very much in my work. So that suffocatingness, which I'm glad you don't mind because it's the only word I can think of at the moment, <laughs> makes it into the recent portraits through Holbein, the, the backgrounds behind portraits of uh, your family or, or Shireen Nishat, for example. Were you conscious of migrating those 70s and 80s colors and even the effect of those colors you would get with, with those printing techniques in, into the present? And did you land on Holbein as the way to do it? Well, I've taken those colors with me through all my pictures. I would say those colors are there in the artist Finkler pictures, they're there in the color pictures of 2007, where I tried to eliminate everything except the naked model and the color. I feel like those colors are my friends and they come with me wherever I go. That That's my comfort zone. And there I will, I will use the word garish, even though they're beautiful, but that's sort of intense where color meets light, where it's just so bright and so saturated. That's my comfort zone. So I didn't know what to do for these recent portraits for the background. And that, that was where I landed because that's the place where I, I feel comfortable, particularly shooting portraits of real people. It was my way to bring them into my world. One of the, the fun things about a retrospective is that one gets to look at a lot of work from a lot of different times and to think of it as a whole. Some artists love that. Some artists don't. People like me, historians, adore it. And one of the things that comes screaming through the work beginning to end to me is is your control over every everything. Do you think of the work that way? Do you When, when, when you walk through installation, do you see as, do you see control? I mean, there's no chance. I mean, one, one way, you know, 
chance was a big thing in art from, say, Dada through Abex, and there's not a lot of chance here. There actually is because I feel like it takes me a really long time to A, dream up the series, B, find the props and objects that I'll use in the series, and C, figure out the colors and the lights and the backgrounds and all of that stuff. And it's not it's not till I throw everything together in the studio that I have any idea whether it will work or not. And what I see through the camera feels like, that feels like chance. No matter how much I think through a series before it happens and gather all my props and my colors and my gels and my this and that, what finally happens when I throw it all together feels nothing like what I anticipated. It's just a completely new development. And so in that sense, in the moment when I'm shooting, it feels like like something really random came together. So so the element of chance, yes, is there then. But then once I'm off and away, there is a lot of control. There is at that point. Because I think one of the real successes of, say, uh, the model house or model room based work is here's a thing dollhouses or you know whatever you call them you know which people play with which are ever-changing and that in your pictures they look like they were always that way and always will be there's there's a, a controlled permanence to them and then even in pictures like the two baby pictures from 1991 i mean there's nothing less controllable than than a baby and you controlled ba- you controlled a baby i controlled a baby Right. And the picture in the music of regret, that kind of very Mae Westish picture where the, the dummy that looks like me is surrounded by six men admiring her. Well, that never happened to me. <laughs> I mean, that idea that you're just sort of like, you know, you're you're just you're the object of all the male attention. I made that happen in a picture. You made it happen in a picture twice, 15 years apart or whatever. Yeah, I made it happen in a movie, and I turned me into Meryl Streep. So that's that's some kind of control right there. <laughs> but I I do I do think that the opportunity to act things out on a psychological level, like a little kid, is firmly rooted in the center of my work. I have to say, it gives me a chance to really to pretend and play. Laurie Simmons, thanks so much. I had a great time talking to you, Tyler. The Guggenheim Museum in New York rewrites art history this fall with the first major U.S. exhibition of groundbreaking Swedish artist Hilma Off Klint. Discover this little-known pioneer of abstraction through more than 165 of her bold and radical paintings and works on paper, described by New York Magazine as, quote, some of the most beguilingly uncanny and imaginative works of the last century. Also on view, a new body of paintings created by contemporary artist R.H. Quaitman, inspired by Off Klint. Plan your visit to this exploration of radical abstraction, two artists, one century apart, at Guggenheim.org. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Ruth Asawa, Life's Work, a career-spanning exhibition focused on Ruth Asawa's evolving artistic practice and ceaseless experimentation with wire. Bringing together more than 60 sculptures, including looped wire, tied wire, electroplated, and cast works, as well as several drawings and collages dating back to her formative years at Black Mountain College, this exhibition sheds light on Asawa's highly distinctive vision, which she achieved with a stunning deftness of hand and economy of means. 
Ruth Asawa Life's Work is on view through February 16th, 2019. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest is Hammer Museum curator Allegra Pacenti. Along with Cynthia Burlingham and help from Florian Rodari, she curated Stones to Stains, the drawings of Victor Hugo, a survey of Hugo's drawing practice. Hugo, of course, was a poet, novelist, playwright, and critic best known for novels such as Les Miserables and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was also a prolific draftsman. He made at least 3,000 drawings, but did not exhibit much during his own lifetime. Stones to Stains features 75 works, mostly made on the Channel Islands of Jersey and Guernsey, between 1852 and 1870. The show's beautiful catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. Amazon offers it for 31 bucks. Allegra Pacenti, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's very good to be speaking to you, Tyler. In the U.S. anyway, Victor Hugo is best known, I think, as a writer, novel such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables, but also for plays and poetry, more writing. So how did making works on paper, drawings and such, become important to him? And I guess, crucially, when did it become important to him? I believe that drawing as a sort of parallel activity to his writing activity was important throughout his career. He began drawing on his travels. He made sketchbooks. Hugo was a great traveler especially before and after his period of exile. He would travel down the Rhine. He would explore medieval architecture. He was fascinated by stone buildings, by history in general. And often on these travels, he would carry sketchbooks and notebooks. And along with taking written notes, he would accompany them with sketches of what he saw, whether they be imaginary sketches or by the scenes and landscapes that he saw. He also made plans, architectural plans of sites that he found particularly interesting. So I would say that at the beginning of his career and his travels, drawings accompanied him. And then especially from the time that he arrives in exile in the Channel Islands, drawings uh, and draftsmanship becomes a more important activity at the side and, as I said, in parallel to his written activity. So the, the, there, are, there are more drawings that survive from his period of exile between 1852 and 1870. That's a 20-year period of exile than from any other period. But there is evidence that he drew both before and after that. So I would say that drawing accompanied him really throughout his long, long life. These drawings were unknown to a broad public in Hugo's own time. There were some prints made while he was in exile, but they certainly seem to have been known among a cultural elite. How, how did that work and how, did, how do we know they were known by a cultural elite? Yes, he 
regarded his drawing practice as a private practice. Uh, there are over 3,000 drawings by Hugo survive today. Probably he made many more, but he didn't necessarily exhibit these. He never showed them at salons in Paris, for instance. That wasn't his interest. If he did show them, he, he gave them as gifts. He sent them with correspondence. He shared them with his family members and his very dear friends. Paul Maurice, for instance, who was his correspondent and eventually his executive, the executive of his estate, amassed a large collection of his drawings, which he then gave to what became the Maison Victor Hugo in Paris, which to this day holds that collection. So he he showed the drawings to to friends, to to colleagues, uh, to printmakers, and to members of his family. But they were all very very carefully chosen destinations. The drawings did sort of trickle out of that circle. Baudelaire, who knew the drawings well and praised Victor Hugo for them. Printmakers who received them would have shared them too. But there isn't any direct evidence of, for instance, I believe that Odilon Redon um, in, would have known his drawings, but there isn't any written mm -hmm. evidence that he did. So I would say that artists, both during his time and shortly after his death, did have access to them, but there isn't any direct knowledge of it, of, of them having. It's not until the 1930s that we know that the Surrealists, for instance, had immediate access to the drawings because his grandson, Jean Hugo, was part of the Surrealist uh, group and his wife, Valentine Hugo, knew André Breton well and gifted drawings to Breton that actually are still around today in the Breton archive at the Pompidou. We know that Picasso was given a few drawings by Valentine Hugo. In fact, one of those drawings is in the exhibition. So it isn't until the early 20th century that we actually have evidence of other artists having more direct access to his drawings. You mentioned printmakers. It was primarily through, a f through some prints that Hugo's drawings were known during his own time. And surprisingly, at least to me, Hugo's first big hit, as it were, was with a 19, I'm sorry, with an 1854 drawing, which by 1860 or 61 could be assigned, if you will, to an American subject. What was it? And did the subject interest Hugo himself or did he just go along with the printmaker's presentation of it? Yeah, that's a very interesting sort of exceptional case, I should say, because previous experience that Hugo had had with printmakers was in terms of reproducing his drawings was not a good one. He experimented with it. He liked the idea of distribution of his his work through printmaking, but it remained an idea for us when he saw the real reproductions in print of his drawings. They just didn't sort of stand up to his to his expectations. So he, although he did publish a book of published, of printed drawings, he, he didn't really defend it, so to speak. The one instance where he really goes to printmaking and appreciates its, its values, both as a medium and its distribution, potential for distribution, was in reference to a print 
of a hanging man, a hanged man. Now, that print was based on a series of drawings that he made in 1854, based on the sentencing to death by hanging of a Jersey resident called John Tapner, who had been found guilty of murder. And Hugo was uh, really railed against capital punishment, and he had made an appeal for clemency for John Tapner, which unfortunately was a futile appeal. And in fact, after Tapner's hanging, Hugo proceeded to make a series of very, very poignant drawings of of a hangman. In fact, he used a stencil for each of these drawings, creating this very haunting silhouette. They're very dark, shadowy, poignant images. In fact, two of these drawings are titled Eche Lex, hanged man in reference to the crucifixion of Christ. So there are sort of various, uh, it's, 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 probably one of his most iconic uh, images. However, a few years later, he did produce a print based on these drawings, but very much retitling it and very much a coined drawing related more specifically to the hanging of the American abolitionist John Brown. And that print is dated 1861. So it's it's based on these drawings of 1854, but he retitles the image John Brown and dedicates it to the American abolitionists in in Charlestown in West Virginia. And then according to to the inscription, the print was circulated widely by print sellers in France and the United States. So that image did become more well known than any other of his drawings, interestingly enough, in his own time. Yeah, we've been talking about how Hugo's drawings were were little seen in his own time. The first French exhibition of them was in 1888 at Gallery Georges Petit and included, among other things, manuscripts that, that, that were not related to drawing, that were related to, to Hugo's writings, but also an immense uh, four-foot-long drawing from 1850 called The Castle with the Cross. It was one of the Hugo drawings that had been made into a print. It was a wood engraving made in 1880. Why was it so big, and what was it about? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that exhibition because that is the first public exhibition of uh, Hugo's works. We know little about it, although we do know, obviously, there is a catalogue for it. It was held at the Galerie Georges Petit. It was based mainly on the collection of Paul Maurice, uh, Hugo's executor. The catalogue, however, is in, is very vague. So we only can assume uh, we know which drawings the titles refer to because there are no specific dimensions and there are no inventory numbers, obviously. Um, that one drawing uh, we do believe is probably the drawing you mentioned and well the, the, the presence of castles relates very much to the title that we ended up choosing for the exhibition and the focus of our exhibition Stones to Stains the range of Iconog- the iconographical range of Hugo's drawings does span from these uh, haunting and grandiose uh, medieval constructions and castles all the way through to very abstract biomorphic forms and what we refer to as stains. And that drawing 
belongs to the latter, to these sort of very formidable uh, representations of, of haunting castles. So, and some of them are incredibly large. Other, other drawings by Hugo are, are minuscule. Anyone who has the fortune of seeing the exhibition will, will, will be more aware of those differences in dimension. The largest drawings, like the one you mentioned and another one of a lighthouse in the exhibition, were often framed by Hugo. So they become these complete works of art in and of themselves. Um, he often decorated the frames, painted them. And I, I would say that the large ones he actually considered, you know, very much worthy of being of hanging on on his walls. He actually hung many of them at Ortville House, his house in on the island of Guernsey. So, so he definitely lived with these works as well as conserving them in in his own manuscripts. You mentioned that some of the drawings are much smaller. It almost seems like the more experimental and abstract he was, the smaller they were. You argue in your catalog essay that many of Hugo's drawings are engagements with the sky, both by day and by night, and that for Hugo, the sky is a certain expression of exile and that he built a kind of political construct around his interest in skies. What is that political construct and interest and how might we see it manifested in the drawings? Yeah, I found myself really exploring this this fascination and passion of Hugo's. Nothing thus far, no, no one had really tackled that subject, but it was really on on my visit to Guernsey and in particular my my visit to the house he inhabited for 15 out of the 19 years of exile that i realized that he he was submerged both in the skies and in the views of the ocean and you know on walks through the island which hugo did on a daily basis both during the day and at night he he went on numerous night excursions. I sort of got a sense of what he meant when he said, when we look at the skies at night, we are we are like we are one. We wherever we are in the world, whether we're in exile on an island in the you know, in the Channel Island or at home in Paris, we see the same sky, we see the same stars. So there's something sort of almost comforting about the, the commonality of nature, the fact that we all share these stones, the same waters, the same oceans, and the same skies. There's also an aspect of the study of the stars and, and of the sort of planetary realm that sort of places us outside of oneself and into into this supernatural uh, surface and realm. And I think that must have also been very comforting for Hugo while he was not, I wouldn't say stranded, but while he was distant from his land of birth and hometown. I became particularly fascinated by by these works because first of all they're among his most experimental drawings uh, these these planetary drawings he used stencils he 
cut them, he pasted them, he, he used coins, he pressed them with various papers and manipulated the papers. And so I believe that the sort of magic of the cosmos and the, the sort of supernatural qualities of the cosmos are, are then expressed in various ways in his approach to drawing. There's also something to say about, there's a text that he wrote called the promontory of dream in which he he refers back to the first time he ever looked at the moon through a telescope at the observatory in paris uh, this happened before he'd come to the islands but he he remembers very vividly the moment when he sees the craters and feels that the moon is actually there. And it's an extraordinary piece of writing because something that he had imagined was untouchable, that was part of the land of dreams, that was mesmerizingly magical, suddenly became at a nice distance. It became tactile. It became palpable. And so there are these two extremes. There's the reality of the moon, the moon that has become at our distance, at a sort of visible distance that we can touch. And then on the other extreme, there's the the mythical moon, the mythical cosmos, the land of magic, the inspiration to poetry, to ancient literature. And I think these are very much, these two extremes are very much reflected in in the drawings. Finally, the catalog doesn't spend a lot of time arguing for art historical relationships between Hugo and and any contemporaries, whether whether it be artists Hugo might have been looking at while he was in exile or artists he knew and, and engaged visually uh, in France. Do you think he's very much in a world of his own interests, or do you think that there were artists he was thinking about or, or jumping off from? I think he was incredibly informed, and I think he knew very well what was going on in every field in his own time, be it artistically, uh, be it in terms of literature, be it in terms of science, botany, uh, you name it. He subscribed to many journals, which he received on the island. He received visitors, so he was informed by, you know, first-hand accounts of visitors. He communed with other exiles. He did visit England, and of course, he then returned to France after his exile. So he remained very, very informed. In terms of how much these influences, who who exactly influenced him, I think it's hard to it's it's hard to tell. I like to think that he. You know, might have known about the romantics and what was going on in Germany in the earlier part of the century. You know, he might have known Turner's work. Why wouldn't he have? He certainly knew what was happening in the area of photography, which was, as you know, a, a new art at the time or a new uh, practice. And he encouraged his 
son in particular, Charles, to learn the art of photography and to practice it. And I mean, photography was being invented in the 1850s between France and England. So both countries that he knew and visited. So in terms of being up to date on the current status of the arts, he really was. I think the freedom he had while he was in exile certainly had an impact on his draftsmanship in that he could sort of take what he wanted, but also do what he wanted with what he knew. I don't think his more abstract drawings were necessarily inspired by any way. One, I don't, I'm not making any claims that he you know, invented abstraction or anything, but I just think they were a place where he could be free to do what he wanted with with a, a knowledge of medium, with a knowledge of how to use a plume. You have to remember that the, 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 the techniques he was using to draw were directly connected to writing. So there was a very easy transition from writing on a page, writing on paper to drawing with a plume on paper with pen and ink and water. So that transition was very smooth. But the expression, uh, the visual expression and, and, and the draftsmanship allowed him to do very different things that he did in writing. And I think those things are really spontaneous and sort of highly individual, idiosyncratic uh, and characteristic of his own mode of expression. So, you know, there's a bit of both. I'm sure he was aware and inspired by by his contemporaries, but uh, I think he was also, he also felt very free to do whatever he wanted with that. Hence the great originality of the works in, in the exhibition. You mentioned Hugo's interest in photography. You know, at this time, photography is as much, or, you know, almost as much chemistry as it is anything else. And the the stain drawings, the, the, the washy drawings, you know, remind me of how collodion and other chemicals would have looked to somebody handling a glass plate as they tilted the plate and coated it with the chemistry necessary to to make a picture. And it's easy to imagine that physicality and that experience informing what he did on paper, at least it is for me. So, Yeah, I think that's a really good point because he did have a darkroom in both his homes in Jersey and Guernsey. And so I like to remember that within his own domestic setting, there was a lot of developing going on and experimenting with, you know, all the all the the fluids needed and the negatives needed to develop photography, and the whole notion of a positive and a negative is very much present in his draftsmanship through the use of stencils, through the chiaroscuro effects, the light and dark mm -hmm. effects. Although his son. And Vakri, his friend, were actually taking the photographs. There is no doubt that Hugo choreographed them and staged them. He was very much the, the sort of artistic mind behind them. And so there is a very strong connection between this sort of discovery of photography and the making of these drawings. In fact, there's one drawing, there are two works in the exhibition. One is 
a photograph of a of a sort of natural water barrier called a dick uh, in in dick in in Jersey, and there's a related drawing of it. But the related drawing is facing the opposite direction, so it's quite clear that he's basing mm-hmm. the drawing on the negative of the photograph. And uh, the drawing ends up being much more moody, much more sort of shadowy, in a way, just much more effective, in my opinion, than the actual photograph. But it's very much connected to the art of photography. And I, I would argue that most of the exhibition, this is the reason why we we chose to incorporate a lot of photography in the exhibition, because the two arts are somewhat inextricable from each other. I think they go very much hand in hand. Marvelous. Allegra Pacente. Thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for your time. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.